Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? Well, today is Mother's Day. This episode comes out on Mother's Day. And so I want to be sure and wish um, all of you a happy Mother's Day. All the mamas, grandmas, bonus moms, godmamas, fur baby mamas. I hope you all have a wonderful day and are treated like the queens that you are. And I wanted to tell you about this book I recently read called Love Without Borders, and it's written by Angela Braniff, and she's known for her popular YouTube channel, This Gathered Nest. And on the front cover is Angela with her family, her husband, and her seven children, okay? Two biological daughters, three adopted children, and her two twins, which she adopted as embryos and then gave birth to herself. Oh, right. Oh my gosh. You look at the cover of this book and you think, how does she do this? Oh, and since the book came out, I found out that she has adopted another child. So she has eight in total and y'all, she runs her own business from home and they homeschool. So wow. Right. Um, And this book is just the story of how she let go of what she thought her life would look like and embraced what God had in store for her instead. And it's beautiful and painful and messy and lovely and real. And I thought it would be so cool um, just to have her on for Mother's Day, you know, to honor the servant's heart that we all have as as mothers. Um, and oh my gosh, here she is, y'all. And Angela, I don't know how you have time to brush your teeth, much less be an adoption advocate, a homeschool mom, a podcast host, and have time to talk to me. But here you are, and I'm so grateful. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. Thank you so much, Chelsea. I'm. It's really my honor to be here. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Well, congratulations on this book. It is so lovely. And again, I don't know how you had time to write it. I, I, I honestly would like to have a little insight on your schedule. But, um, but I do love a book that gives me perspective makes me jot notes, you know, and underline things I want to remember and also gives me some things to chew on when I'm done. And your book did all of that for me. Um, And I really did look at the cover and just think, oh my gosh, how does she do this? Um, And, but what I love is that you really give that picture of real life in there. Like some days are a hot mess and some days you're, you're wearing your mullet outfit, which completely cracked me up. Tell everybody what a mullet outfit is. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, they say mullets are like a business in the front, party in the back. And when I have to like film something or do a call, like a Zoom call or something, I am one of those people who's like dressed from the waist up, you know, my hair and makeup's done, my shirt's on, but I'm definitely wearing like ratty pajama pants or, uh, you know, sweatpants or something like that on the bottom and slippers pretty much always. (laughs) I love that. So now we know your secret. So um, I'm looking at you, I'm going to be like, she's all mullet over there. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, I bet every day 
in your house is different, but I would love a glimpse in just to one of those. Like, how are things going down today? Like, you can talk to me. I'm sure you're doing, you know, you've got all kinds of stuff going on, but how, what does a day look like? Yeah, I mean, it's that's absolutely right. No two days are hardly ever the same. And I feel like, you know, when you have a big family and, you know, kind of are juggling a lot of things, people can assume one of two things that like either you're some kind of saint and everything around your house is just like, ah, birds singing on your (laughs) windowsills all the time. Or it's like complete chaos and kids are screaming and there's Cheerios stuck to your butt. And like, it's people just kind of picture it's like one or the other. And the reality is, is that it's pretty much a a good split between the two. I mean, there's no birds singing on my windowsill, but um, it's definitely day, some days that I'm like, oh, this was a smooth day. Things just felt really good. And then other days where you fall into bed and feel like the wheels have come off and maybe you are just a giant mess who will never get herself back together. So we all have those days. And I had those days when I had just one child or two kids. So I feel like that's, you know, it pretty much transcends all of motherhood, I would say. But An average day for us, because we do kind of juggle a lot of things, um, I always like to say that, like, I do a lot of things, but I don't do them all, all the time, like every day. (laughs) I kind of like block schedule my week for different activities, but pretty much the, the schedule in our home is that we like to not, I wouldn't say sleep in but we certainly are not hitting the alarm clock at five o'clock in the morning and jumping out of bed. Uh, We like to start our days slowly um, and just sort of eat breakfast together and talk and hang out and just kind of be a family together. And then we like ease into starting our schoolwork and pretty much doing our homeschool takes us all the way to lunchtime. Um, And then we sort of do our lunch together. And that's when I usually have the opportunity to break away and go do some work. I have a little shed in my backyard that I've converted into a little office as of about, I don't know, maybe four months ago. And it's the greatest thing I've ever done. (laughs) A she shed. Yes, it's, it's a she shed. Well, I mean, it's not like the fancy ones you see on Pinterest, but... Uh, little by little, I'm making it, I'm making it function. Uh, it kind of makes me laugh because I have like a deep freezer for extra food, my desk, camera equipment, like it's just kind of like a, you know, a mix of a lot of different stuff. But um, yeah, so I work in the afternoons. And then, you know, we again come back together in the you know late afternoons for dinner. And I feel like dinner time in everybody's house is always a little bit of just chaos. Um, and then it's like the bedtime routine and that I lovingly refer to as a very long game of whack-a-mole where it's like, yeah, one down, the other down, here we go. That one goes, she needs some water. She needs this, you know, back and forth trying to get everybody, uh, down for bed, but we've gotten that routine tightened up pretty well, uh, so that everybody's kind of in bed and at least attempting to fall asleep. And, and then that gives my husband and I some time together. So we try to stick loosely to that. I'm actually the type of person that really doesn't like strict schedules. I don't, uh, I just don't follow those, those rules very well. And it ends up making me feel like really confined and stressed out. So we try to just have like a loose routine of the things that we want to get done. Um, and we really kind of look at our life truly at like one week at a time, like what needs to get done this week um, and figure it out from there. So well, that's, chaotic, that's a, but it's good. well, less pressure when you're not really trying to stick to just a real strict routine. I would think that you could plan all day long and then one thing kind of, you know, one activity goes off the rails and then everything's 
everything else is off the rails for the rest yes. of the day. And that could just, that could alone can bring you so much more stress than if you just are a little bit, fr- a little free and loose, you know, with the schedule. Yeah. So. And, and I'm kind of, I mean, I fight the urge to be a control freak. And that's what I found is that when I tried to do things like very by the book, like got to do this and then this time and this time, uh, anytime, you know, you, you miss something or something goes too late, it throws everything else off. And to me, that was just, it was adding more stress than it was helping to have like a, you know, a very like a regimented schedule. So, you know, just kind of relaxing the parameters a little bit definitely helped give me some, some space to not be so stressed. Yeah. Well, so, okay. In your book, you talk about, I mean, this is what I always wonder when, you know, maybe somebody has a big family like yours. I'm like, did they, is this, was this like the plan? Like I want to, you know, when you're a child, you're like, I'm going to have eight children when I grow up. And I just, you know, I think some people do and some people don't, but for you, what kind of tell us a little bit more about that story for you. Cause in the book, you talk about this checklist life, like you were just, you know, kind of thought your life was going to be one way. And, um, well you explain it kind of tell me what you meant by that and how it yeah. like, didn't end up that way. Yeah. I mean, I was one of those people that as like a teenager specifically, I just, I didn't even know if I actually wanted to have kids. I didn't really like kids very much. I wasn't <laughs> like very maternal. Um, you know, when other girls were like loving to babysit and things like that, it just wasn't really my thing. And my older sister really wanted to have kids and be a mom. It was, you know, that was her dream. Uh, and I think that hearing people tell her, well, don't you want to do something more with your life than just be a mom? Um, and say things like that to her. I really internalized that. And I really took that as like, okay, So what they're saying is, if I want to do something important with my life, I'm going to have to uh, do something more than just being a mom, right? And so it's kind of like that road alongside the also narrative of growing up in church, um, where it was sort of like, there's this checklist to a happy life. And it looks like, you know, you get married and you buy a house, you have a little three, two ranch and you get a golden retriever. And then you have (laughs) two children, one boy and one girl, and they're, you know, perfect and adorable and cute. And, and you're, you've achieved the the happiness checklist. Like you've made it, you've done it. And I really felt like I didn't really seem like necessarily what would make me happy, but I didn't know any different or any better. I just felt like, okay, this is whatever, this is sort of like what the narrative is. This is what everyone says you're supposed to do um, for fulfillment and happiness. Um, and, you know, to sort of be a good Christian woman type thing. Uh, And so I really, really struggled with that. Um, And once I had achieved it and checked the boxes was really when my internal struggle with it came to light because it was like, okay, I've done it. Like I did everything I was supposed to do. Where's the, where's the round of applause, if you will? Like where's the feeling (laughs) um, of, of contentment? Where's the feeling of belonging? Where's the feeling of like, this is, this is good. This is, this is the life that I was meant for. Uh, and I think that that's really important because it's very personal for some people. That is the life that they desire and the life that they are meant for. Um, but for me, it it wasn't. Um, and so it was sort of like, well, now what do I do? Because this is what everyone says I'm supposed to do. And I don't really feel like I, I fit totally in, in this storyline. Like, what do I do now? Um, and that's sort of where my idea of, of needing to break free from the checklist kind of came from. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those things, one of the breakaway things that you did was, um, was adopt. And one of the sentences in your, um, 
in your book just struck me so hard. It's one of the things I underlined and it made me get teary eyed. And it said, this is what, you know, you were a plea to God, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. And I was just like, Oh God, that just struck me so hard in my heart and brought tears to my eyes. And you know, what was it that, what was it that you were wanting God to show you? What were you expecting? Yeah, I, I just, I didn't know, I didn't know what I needed him to show me, but I knew that I was craving something that felt real, something that felt like um, it had a depth and a meaning that I felt like was missing in my life. I felt like so many things seemed superficial, not my love for my husband or my love for my kids, um, but just the, you know, the sort of this path, this straight and narrow path that needed to, to look like everyone else's. Um, that felt very superficial for me. Uh, and I just had this aching um, and it just kind of told me like, I needed to use my blessings to help others. Like not, not just to fluff my own nest and make my own nest better, but like, how could I, you know, use the blessings that God had bestowed upon me to not just better my own life, but the lives of others. Like I knew that there was a deeper meaning and, and something out there that I was just missing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I talk a lot about getting signs from God. I've done several podcast episodes where I've just, you know, talked about how I ask and how I hear. And I think it's really important for us to share those because, um, it's how we glorify God. And, you know, to me, it just blows me away over and over that we get to have that supernatural connection with him. But, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of people are like, I don't think I'm getting signs. I don't know how to hear a sign. So I like for people to share and, and you, you mentioned it in your book, um, about, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll feel, you'll get these signs from God. So would do you mind kind of just sharing how you yeah, sure. feel them, um, and you get them and what that looks like for you? Yeah, I think the beginnings of it are often things that we tend to brush off as coincidence. We see things and think, well, that was just a coincidence and, and not necessarily recognizing that perhaps those might be like divine providence and not coincidence. Um, and so for me, it was little things that were just initially started out as like kind of cute, like numbers and dates things. Like, for example, uh, when I gave birth to my daughters, um, one of them was born on January 10th and the other was born on October 1st. So their birthdays are opposites of each other, 110 and 101. Um, and I thought that that was just a really interesting little coincidence, right? That was kind of how I looked at it. Um, and then as our story progressed and as uh, we moved through our adoptions and stuff, I found that the Lord really used um, dates very specifically in our stories and, and timelines to confirm things for me. Uh, and Rosie's story is a really um, probably the most obvious example of that, um, where it was to me, it was undeniable. It's almost like a lightning strike when I went and looked at, you know, go back to look at her story and how that all transpired. It was insane that there was this moment that he, you know, spoke something to me and then it came to fruition four years later uh, when I believed that all hope was lost and, and that maybe I just misheard him. Uh, and so it's always precious to me to see how he is such a God of details. And I think sometimes when we are thinking about hearing from him, we do think of this like almost like burning bush, uh, you know, like lightning strike angels appearing before us because, you know, you see these like woman saw Jesus's face in a cake um, right. or things like that. And we think that like, that's what it, that's what it has to be. 
Um, but through the years, God has really shown me that like he is in the details of things. And if we slow down and we quiet ourselves, like that's where we will hear him and see him um, in everything. Our world has really just moved us to like this breakneck speed that sometimes we have a hard time slowing down enough, um, I think, to, to necessarily recognize the times he's trying to speak to us and, and talk to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said on a, a few of my podcasts ago, I was like, if you don't think God's in the details, you've never studied the hormone system. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, he is in all the details. And um, yeah, I think that receiving um, guidance and, um, you know, signs from the Holy Spirit, it just looks a little different for everybody. And so mm-hmm. that's why I like people to share that and, um, and just you know, reaffirm that we, that he does speak to us and he does, he is in the details and he wants to guide us. And yeah, we kind of have to slow down and listen and, um, and pay attention, pay attention to what he's saying. Um, and okay. So your, so you had your two girls, um, and then your first adoption was Africa, correct? Yes. Congo. Yeah. Congo. And, um, in all of this, all of the stories, all of Angela's adoption stories in the book, they're so, they're just so wonderful. And she just gives such wonderful insight. But one of the things you said about your trip to Africa was that you didn't realize how Americanized your view of Jesus was. And that really struck me because I thought, I bet I have an Americanized view of Jesus <laughs> as well. Um, and so what was it about that trip that that made you think that? Yeah, it's I think so many of us do, and it's not a it's not necessarily our fault. Um, it's just sort of again the the way that we grow up through churches and and things like that. But it started for me in recognizing um the people that I was meeting in Congo who were Christians, who were believers, and looking at their lives and realizing that the things that sometimes I was hearing, uh, the books that maybe I was reading back home that were meant to make me feel better and make me feel like, you know, I could, you know, my life could look like this or it could look like that. Realizing that if that was God's plan for all of humanity, if that was his ultimate outcome for everyone, or what our lives were supposed to look like, then how come it wasn't possible for these women in Congo or these men in Congo? Um, And it really took me by surprise, mostly, especially like one of the first Sundays that I went to church when I was there, because um, seeing the conditions in which these uh, folks go through just to get to church, and then the buildings, if you can even necessarily call it that, that they're worshiping in and uh, the lack of Bibles and the lack of, of anything, it was a very stark contrast to the reality here is that, you know, sometimes we struggle to get people to church without giving them a light show and a concert and free coffee mm-hmm. and all of these things that we do to try to drag, like <laughs> drag yeah. people into church. Um, and that there's these people in other parts of the world that really risk their lives to show up for Bible studies and churches and to meet in secret and in the dark with a flashlight. And even owning a Bible is a privilege for them. And that's something that we take for granted is they're all over the place here. Um, You know, you can turn around and grab a Bible, you know, especially I live in the South in the Bible Belt. So, I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of Bibles around here. Um, And so it was 
you know, it was really just sort of this stark contrast of thinking, gosh, you know, this doesn't, it doesn't seem like we're reading the same book uh, or, or almost even like praying to the same God because it, it seems to be walked out so differently. Um, and it made me feel like what I was maybe potentially taking in back home as truth was more of truly an American idea of what that looked like and not necessarily something that applied to all of humanity and all of you know the world. Mm -hmm. You said in the book that that trip, that experience with you and your mom, I mean, it, that was something that really um, stuck with you, weighed on you heavily probably to this day still does, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, and I've never, I've never been there, but that did make me think, you know, you're right. Like we're just like bribing people trying to get them to church. And, you know, a lot of, there's so much, you know, God wants you to be rich and famous and popular yeah. and all of these things. And, you know, we just kind of can come under this delusion of, or get caught up in that. And, and then you, when you paint that picture of these people just, just loving, you know, loving Jesus and just in trying to get to church and, and really having that heart to do that. And they're in danger. It's just, Oh gosh, it's just heartbreaking. And, um, and it's an eye opener and I'm sure it sounds like that's what it was for you. Yeah. It's, it, it really makes you think twice about, I always say that like the two things that change me the most in my life, um, continually, our perspective and gratitude. So it, taking those experiences, and last year I went to Uganda um, for about two weeks, and it was a different but similar experience um, to being in Congo in many ways, uh, but it was a very similar thing going into the churches and stuff, and I had taken some video footage of worship there, and I came home and I said something to my pastor here at the time and was like, this is the like, I've never felt the presence of Jesus more than I did in this tiny hut in the middle of a village in Uganda. Um, I mean, it was like his presence was just palpable in the room. And that's the kind of worship service that uh, they create with just their voices and their hearts and their willingness to be there. And it's not that any of the instruments or lights or amazing singers or anything like that are wrong or bad. It's just that I, I think it could be a beautiful thing if we could get back to a place where we didn't have to have that right. um, to get people to show up um, where churches didn't didn't have to necessarily invest that kind of money back into their own church just to get people to, to come, right? Instead mm -hmm. of being able to use that money for outreach in the community and other things. So uh, that's obviously like a whole can of worms, but I it, it really <laughs> it really changed my perspective. And on a, on the funnier note, uh, it was around that time that I came to the same realization. This is sad that it took me this long, I realized, but that I was like, oh, wow. So these pictures that people have up in their houses of Jesus is like this Anglo-Saxon white guy with blue eyes, not accurate at all. Like <laughs> not even kind of. And I was talking to my girls about that in homeschool the other day when we were doing some of our Bible study, we were talking about it and we tried to Google, like, what would Jesus have looked like? And it, Google pulled up all these different pictures. And one of them, my daughter behind me goes, oh, that's DJ Khalif or something. I don't know how you say oh. his name. And I was like, what? And so I didn't know who this person was. She apparently did. Um, but it just made me laugh that like, I'm trying to pull up what Jesus might've looked like. And instead I got like some modern popular DJ. Um, it just made me laugh. I'm like, okay, so that's that's kind of, I guess what Jesus might've looked like. Uh, oh, so it's that's kind of funny. so funny. <laughs> uh, that makes me think of the... Um 
the painting that 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 young girl did did you did you ever see that there's a painting that uh, she lives abroad somewhere and um I believe she had um I believe she had a near-death experience and she when she or she had some interaction where she felt like she knew what God, what Jesus looked like. And she painted this really elaborate, beautiful portrait. I'm going to have to find it now. And, um, and she was like nine or something And this, and her, her painting skills and ability were just will blow you away. And then in that movie, heaven is for real or the book, heaven is for real. The little boy that had a near death experience when he woke up and his, and his dad had Googled something like, what does Jesus look like? And came upon that, that picture that girl had painted and the little boy was like, oh, there he is right there. That's exactly what he looks like. Oh, Uh, wow. Yes. I will have to. Yeah. I just, I just Googled it, uh, to see while you were talking. Yeah. Did you find it? Kramerick's, Kramerick's painting is, I think the little girl's name, um, the likeness of Jesus. Maybe I'm at the wrong place. I don't, but I see the picture and then a little girl next to it because it's got her with all of the different interviews and stuff that she did. That's an incredible painting, like incredibly realistic, like, wow. I know. I know. I mean, that alone, incredible. So you'll have to show your girls that. And then, um, and then to, for that, the other little boy to recognize it, you know, at a different time when he was going through the experience. I don't know. It was just like, wow. So I don't know Incredible. if that's what Jesus really looks like, but that right? might be more accurate than DJ yeah. Khalif or whatever. Right? I'm I'm not ready to find out just yet, but someday yeah. I will find out. <laughs> that is right. We will we will find out one day. Um, okay, so one of my favorite chapters in the book is uh, Jehovah Jireh, and I honestly had not been exposed to that name for God um, until someone somewhat recently. And so I bet if that's true for me, there's probably a lot of people out there that aren't as well. So would you, for, for those that are not, would you kind of explain, um, explain what that means and explain that name for God? Yeah. Um, I actually first heard the, the reference to Jehovah Jireh when I was in, I don't know, I was probably 12 years old. There was a worship song that came out in like the eighties. Um, and that was the lyrics, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me. And it was, you know, sort of this catchy worship song. And we used to sing it in church. Um, but it's based really off of Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14, um, when, uh, um, sorry, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, it's based off of Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14, um, when Abraham is bringing Isaac as a sacrifice and, um, and God does not, he replaces him, you know, and with a, a ram. And so that's what Abraham refers to this place as, uh, it's kind of more pulled together into one word in the Bible. There is Jehovah Jireh. Um, oh. but it's, it means the Lord will provide. Um, and that's obviously, you know, Abraham being not having sacrificed the son as the, as God provided a ram and sacrifice in place, um, of Isaac. So, uh, for me, uh, that verse was, you know, something again, like I said, I'd heard in, in worship songs, but um, it was really representative of that story of Jonah's adoption in my book and talking about um, how God provided for us and um, provided for us financially. And I was always hesitant so much to talk about that piece of it because like you talked about before, sort of this idea of prosperity and things like that. And I didn't want it to come across as though I was saying that God just rains money down upon us. Um, but it was more of a, 
God called me to something and said, I want you to do this thing. And I said, God, I don't know how I will do that. I don't have the money. <laughs> and it was more of his like, I have asked you to do this. I will provide. I'm the Lord that will provide. I'm Jehovah Jireh. And, and he did in miraculous ways that really made it uh, so that there was no denying that it was him. It was not of my own ability or doing. It was all him. Yeah, that I'm like, I have goosebumps from head to toe because I, I you know, I read the story. <laughs> so I know it and it's a great one. But part of that, um, and I know, of course, I read that Abraham Isaac story. I don't know how I miss Jehovah Jireh, but um, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's just not something that that phrase is not something that was really, you know, stuck with me, I guess, in my going to church and, and such. But yeah, it, I don't, but it, I don't feel like I hear it a ton. Like I said, for me, it was a, like going back to that, to that worship song where we would always sing it. And I always loved that song. Um, and so I, I don't feel like it's something that I often hear uh, talked about very much. So I feel like it's kind of, you know, skimmed over sometimes or, you know, depending on translations and stuff like that. Mm hmm. Well, so in that, in that story, um, of, of that adoption, um, and, you know, and the provision and how was this going to happen? Because I mean, I, I understand that it's, you know, it, it does require a lot. It sounds like a lot of time, a, a lot of, you know, quite a bit of money to, um, especially I guess internationally adopt in that, um, in that, that just at the time it was, you know, didn't, you did not have that. And so I love part of that story that you wrote is the concept of goers and senders. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And, um, and I love that. I loved that part of the book. Um, well, why don't you tell us what that is? Tell us the concept of the goers and the senders. Yeah. I mean, basically for me, it's, you know, I look at it as this idea that uh, you know, we need people to go and do the things, but we also need people to make the thing, make the things possible, whether that's financially or, you know, let's say, I mean, you've got missionaries, right? And they are going to these tiny villages and in, in different countries or places around the world, but they need somebody who went to aviation school and became a pilot that can fly the plane that takes them there. Or the, you know, the members of the church who are working nine to five jobs and maybe have seen traditional financial success um, that are, you know, willing to fund different things. So there, it's it's like this, you know, almost larger picture that there's so many pieces of this puzzle and we all play different roles and we all sort of fit different pieces in this larger puzzle. Um, and so uh, learning that, I didn't have, you know, God didn't at that time, we were struggling financially um, in the sense of like, we didn't have, we could take care of our family, but we didn't have copious amounts of cash just laying around to fund these adoptions that we felt like God was calling us to. And so it was kind of a weird, like, well, does that mean we shouldn't do it? But then we found that, you know, there's other people out here who can't do the act of adopting, who can't be the ones to show up in that way, but they, they can be the ones to scratch out checks and help with funding and different things like that. So it was a coming together of lots of different roles and, and pieces of the puzzle um, to, to, to sort of come together and make the, the whole story um, and different complex issues, you know, kind of come together and happen. And the way that that unfolded was really, was really neat, but that piece of the book just 
you know, it just kind of, it really resonated with me and it gave me a sense of peace about, um, like, okay, yeah, there's, there's different roles for all of us. Cause I, I'll tell you, like, I've never, I've never felt that calling like to adopt or be a missionary or anything like that. And then I have this, you know, this guilt, like I'm not a, I'm yeah. not a good person. You know, like if I was a better person, you know, I would do something like that. And I would, I would feel that and I would have that desire and, you know, and I don't know, just you putting it like that was like, you know, that's maybe that's just, you know, we're not all called to do the same thing. And what, what I might be called to do is to support the person that is the goer. And, um, and I just love the way that you put that, you know, I can be a facilitator, I can be a supporter. And, um, and I think that was just a really beautiful, way that you put it in perspective. And I and for me, it just, like I said, gave me peace. And so I wanted to bring that up for other people out there. Um, just, you know, we, we all are, have our different roles and, um, and they're all important and, and they all do absolutely. fit that piece of the puzzle. And I thought that was, that was really Absol- cool. Gosh, absolutely. And I, I can tell you that over the years, as we've shared our family online and become more of sort of advocates, if you will, in the space of uh, vulnerable children and adoption and all of this, I've become really, really passionate about that because uh, as I've gotten older and learned more and seen more, you know, the my passion for vulnerable children has helped me to really see that adoption is not the answer. Uh, not only are we not all, you know, called to adoption, but adoption isn't the solution for orphan care and and vulnerable children. There are many children who live in orphanages who are unavailable for adoption. So that's not the solution by any means. And so, yeah, I'm really passionate about helping people to see that when it comes to solutions for vulnerable children, you know, being foster parents or guardian ad ad litems or social workers, um, you know, people again, who have the financial means to help out that way, um, giving or people who don't have finances, but they have time to give. There's so many different ways and we're definitely not all called to adoption, but I do believe that we're all mandated through scripture to care um, for these vulnerable children and how we show up in that way will look different. Um, But I definitely don't want people to believe any kind of false notion that if you can't or don't feel led to adopt that you can't be a part of the overall solution. Mm -hmm. Adoption is such a small piece of that. And I think that what we need most is for people to just stop looking away. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, that just, this just reminded me, this conversation is that I have had this, I don't want to really say it's a vision, but just this picture in my head that has come over me several times over my, of my life uh, with me, I'm sitting in a rocking chair in a room and I know that the room, it's like, it's like an orphanage and I'm rocking babies. And mm-hmm. I've had that come into my head and I've told some of my friends about that. And, you know, I don't know what it means, except that I guess one day I will be doing that. And, um, and I look forward to that day. And, and it's just interesting to, it's interesting to have that, you know, and not know what that means or how that's going to play yeah. out. But, um, but I'll let y'all know, <laughs> I'll let y'all know what it does. Um, but you know, that's just one of kind of those signs, those things, those signs, you know, something mm-hmm. sometimes God gives yep. us that a vision to hold. Or something like that. And we have no idea what it means or when or if it might really happen. But it's it's some kind of holy clue, I think. Yeah. And um, and so I do have that. And I and I am holding on to that. that. And so we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, 
so I, um, I love the whole story of Rosie, <laughs> uh, sweet Rosie and, and just behind her name and how God's hand was it, you know, hand was in it the whole way. Well, in all of this, like with each of your children, um, you know, God's hand is always in it, but the stories are just, oh, they're so wonderful, um, as they unfold. Um, but after Rosie, you decide to try to conceive again. So at this point you have five kids, correct? Yeah. We'd actually started trying to conceive after oh, we brought Jonah home. Okay. So before we had you four got Rosie. and then God kind of interrupted that with Rosie, which was part of the, like, well, are we supposed to be doing this? Cause we weren't even on this path. Um, but, but yes, right. around that, by the time we actually got around to really doing something about the secondary infertility and not being able to conceive was after Rosie was home. So at that time we did have five kids. Okay. Um, and you had very, very difficult pregnancies, um, yeah. which you, which you go into and talk about into, in the book. Um, what was the name of, uh, it's called hyperemesis or HG is sort of the short, the shortened version. And what, what is that? I mean, I know what it oh, is. Oh yeah. So it's, kind of um, well, it's basically, it's basically like extreme morning sickness. Um, it sort of is a debilitating morning sickness that for some women, you know, lasts their entire pregnancy. Um, you know, it really depends the, the level of it. But for me, it made me require um, pick lines and getting TPN and um, lots of interventions in the beginning of my pregnancy um, because I just could not not only could I not keep food or drink or anything like that down, but it starts to deteriorate kind of a lot of things for you mentally and all of that too. Mm -hmm. And, but, and yet you were willing to, to, to go through that again. Yeah. You know, for, first of all, jokingly, let me just say pregnancy amnesia is a real thing. Um, people, you know what I mean? Like two weeks after you have a baby and you're like, oh, this baby's so sweet. I want another one. And you forget all the things, right? And you're in labor. You're like, I'm never doing this again. Yeah, and then right. afterwards, you know, you're pregnant again. So pregnancy amnesia is a real thing. But um, I will say that this is a really common uh, struggle for women with hyperemesis. I'm in a couple of support groups. And this is an ongoing battle because you know, the desire in your heart to have children or have more children does not go away um, because you struggled to, to get them here. Uh, the longing in your heart for it, um, it's, it's hard to explain. And um, I don't have like a tied up in a little bow kind of answer to say why. Um, but I think, you know, I just always knew that like the prize at the end was so worth it that I, I would, you know, be willing to, I would be willing to, to try it again, kind of a thing to see if maybe, and you always have this hope too, that maybe uh, you won't have it. Maybe this time you won't have it. You know, mm -hmm. some rare people don't have it with every pregnancy. So maybe it would be different this time. Maybe if I had a boy instead of a girl, or you know what I mean? Like, you know, maybe the gender of the baby made a difference in that. And like, you, you think of all these things, but when we had started trying this time, because it had been a number of years, uh, I had met with my doctor first. Uh, because I had found that there was some research showing that there was a medication that they were using that was having great success with women with hyperemesis. So for me, it was like this, this piece of hope that was dangled now that like I could potentially have a pregnancy and have another child um, without that monster of hyperemesis. And so um, 
that desire had just never left my heart. And so we decided to, um, to, to let it play out and to, to try it, you know, and see. And then once you kind of start going down that road, I think that, um, you know, that desire only gets solidified and it becomes like, okay, now, now I want this even more than I did, um, you know, before. And it's just, yeah, it's hard to explain because I know that a lot of, for a lot of people, you know, they sort of, they have that feeling of like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm done. I had one kid or two kids or three kids or whatever that number is. And, you know, they feel very, you know, done. Um, but for, for people like me who, who struggle with that, um, it's sometimes hard to explain like why that feeling of being like, okay, I'm totally done. Like why that feeling didn't come. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you put in the book how, you know, people, people have a lot of opinions and reactions when, yeah. um, they're like, Oh, you know, I'm going to have my sixth child or I'm going to adopt another kid, you know? And, and you said some of the responses you got like, are you nuts? Or you must be, are you trying to be a saint or, you know? And I was thinking about that and I was like, Oh, I probably, you know, I, I know that I probably done that or thought that like, my another yeah. kid, you know, it just as like a knee jerk reaction. And, and so I was kind of just mulling on, why do I do that? It's not even, not even my business. You know, it just made me really kind of dig into my head. Like, why would I even do something like that? Um, and I, for me, I think that uh, for a lot of people, it's almost like comes from a place of defensiveness. Like maybe yeah. they feel threatened or guilty. Like I'm not as uh, you know, I'm not as good of a mom or I could never handle that. And we, sometimes we take what other people are doing as like a reflection or judgment on what we're not doing. And, um, and I think it can cause that automatic, you know, defensiveness. But, um, I think that, I don't know, that just gave me something to chew on as <laughs> you a lot yeah, of things in your I, book. And I, I appreciate that. And I like that, you know, cause I'm like, yeah, that, why would, why would I do that? It just brought attention to it. You know, I think that's, I think it's amazing that you feel like that you're honest about that feeling. Cause it's true. I think that uh, a lot of us have that reaction to certain things. Um, it sort of pokes us in a way that we can't explain. Like, why is that poking me? Why is that making me, why is that ruffling my feathers? Or is that like spigging my hackles up? Um, and I, I do think that there's like a combination of, um, you know, it's almost like, I hate to say like, but like this, this, we mentally do this like race to the, to the bottom, right? Like who's better, like mm -hmm. who's sacrificing more in our eyes. Um, and that's, it's such a dangerous way to look at our lives and to compare ourselves against each other. I mean, yeah, I have eight kids, but, and, and a child with special needs and things like that. But like, I have a friend who has 12 kids, five kids adopted with Down syndrome. I, if, if I was just like, racing her to like, who, who wants to be more of a mother Teresa? Yeah. Like you, that, that game has no end. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, there's, it's just a continuous thing. Um, and you know, we just, we need to be better. I think as a society at recognizing like the beauty in the differences in our lives and the impact that our lives have in different ways. Um, I always say like my decision to, to do something like, for example, homeschooling is not an indictment on someone's decision not to, right. um, you know, so I think that as a whole, particularly women, and when it comes to being mothers, like that's our soft spot, that's our sensitive spot for a lot of women, most women, arguably. Um, and we need to be better at saying like, good for her, not for me. And right. like, that's it, you know, because we know what 
we, you know, what we feel called to and all of that. But uh, what always breaks my heart inevitably is then the, the flip of that of women who feel like they want to have more kids um, or do something different, but they feel like, you know, they don't like the judgment they get for it because that sort of narrative is like kids are burdens and kids bring you down and kids are, you know, just a, just an anchor that that weighs you down all the time. Um, and so because the reaction can be so negative for having a large family, I do think that sometimes that hinders some women who feel like they would like to have more children or whatever. And then they don't because because of how people will react. So all around, like, just need to, like, give each other so much more grace and and like not in a mean way, but like mind your own business. And like, that is what's right for her. One kid or 10, like that's what's right for her. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think. Or no kids. <laughs> yeah. Or no kids. You know, I know. I just, I, I was like realizing as I went through the book, like, obviously I, you know, I had this common theme of, um, of like putting this judgment on myself, you know, when I was talking about the goers and the cinders and I was like, Oh, you know, that made me feel better. It's like, I ha- have this weird, you know, I guess I had tend to have this weird like guilt or, um, or something, or, or seem to think that other, the way other people are living their lives has to be a commentary on how I should live mine. And, um, and so anyway, that was just one of the great big things that, you know, for me in your book, just gave me something to chew on. I just, I love a book that makes me do that. So, (laughs) um, so that, you know, you, there's just so much in there to, um, to take away from it. Well, um, uh, before before we go and I ask you the last two questions I ask everybody, I want to just go back because I think the way that you had the twins was just so, what what a story. Can you just give us a little bit of that? It was just the way that ended up, I thought, I think it's so neat. Yeah. Uh, well, we had, like I said, we'd, we'd been struggling with secondary infertility, which uh, was a really emotionally difficult because it didn't make any sense. We'd had our two biological daughters very easily um, as far as getting pregnant goes. The pregnancy was not fun, but getting pregnant was easy. And so when we started trying to have another child and then it was difficult, that was when all of the doubts kind of came in. Um, And we went through about two years of um, everything from just, you know, sort of the, the good old fashioned way, if you will, of trying to get pregnant to uh, trying IUIs and then eventually IVF and uh, you know, sort of the desperation of infertility is a somewhat brutal road that I had not had no experience with um, until then. And um, after we had a failed IVF and a failed IVF that no one saw coming, our doctors included were like, wait, what? You know, nobody could believe that it, it didn't work. Um, but at that time, I had had a friend through Facebook that had um, done an embryo adoption. And I'd always kind of kept that in the back of my mind that that was something that you could do because I didn't really even know that it was before that. Right. And so, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, a lot, lot of people, people are going to be like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but it's it, to me, it's like, this is one of my favorite things to like talk about and advocate for, because I think that we discount a lot of times when people are struggling with infertility, they'll say, well, why don't you just adopt? And listen, I obviously love adoption, um, but there's a lot at, there's a lot there with adoption. There's a lot there in terms of like, loss being the first thing in in that story right and it's it's not it's not all sunshines and rainbows there's a lot there um and i think it discounts the the desire that some women really have deep down in their heart to carry a child and give birth to a child and so um embryo adoption is another option to kind of uh circumvent some different circumstances and allow you the opportunity to be pregnant and give birth um because you know, if eggs or sperm or something like that are both the issue, 
then then you can adopt embryos. And so a lot of times, like couples who go through IVF, and then let's say they have 10 embryos, and they give birth to, you know, two or three children, and then they know they don't want seven more kids. But they have questions for themselves about what they feel comfortable doing with the rest of those embryos, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of um, ethical questions when it comes mm -hmm. to IVF and, and embryos. And so you only have a few choices really, um, you know, and discarding them is often, you know, not okay for a lot of people. Uh, people don't want to donate their embryos to science um, and, you know, they don't want to like leave them frozen indefinitely or anything like that. So one of the options can be to donate them basically um, to another family who's struggling with infertility or whatever the case may be and, uh, give them a chance at life that way. And so that's what we ended up doing was, uh, adopting, uh, two embryos and trying, it was sort of, I, I call it in the book, our, our hail Mary. Um, <laughs> it was like, we discovered through the infertility process that I, uh, in the time since I gave birth to my second daughter, that, um, my body just decided it was like, gonna time to fry up the eggs, they were done. Um, so I had really, you know, just poor egg quality. Uh, and so this was an opportunity, this was an option that would circumvent that it wasn't for, for lack of technical terms, it wasn't the oven that was broken. Um, and so they were like, if we do an embryo, you know, transfer with a healthy embryo, then, you know, there's no reason you can't potentially carry that child. Um, and so we adopted this, you know, these sort of set, if you will, of two and transferred them both thinking at that point, nothing had ever happened. We didn't have any pregnancies, you know, over that two years of trying. So I really didn't think anything was gonna happen at all. Um, but then we did end up conceiving and they both, you know, sort of stuck. So uh, we ended up having twins, which was crazy. And I, you know, I say it in the book, like I know that some people are probably like, you are such a dingling for things, like, why are you surprised that you're having twins when you put in two embryos? But but when you're so used to things not working and a lot of people put in two embryos and only one takes or none take, I mean, it's kind of common. Mm -hmm. um, so I really just at that point had kind of accepted that like, if this did not work, then that was it. This was our last you know, chance, this direction, we would, we would just you know, kind of walk away from it if, if it didn't work. Um, and we were shocked and surprised when we found out we were having twins. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I know we get to that part in the story. I'm like, Oh my gosh, are you serious? Whoa, that's just it's <laughs> unbelievable. And so, so you had the girls and then, and then now since the book came out, then you have just adopted another little boy. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, it's funny when, um, when you read the last chapter of the book, it's almost like a, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really not, being totally serious when I use the word prophecy. But when, when you read that last chapter and I say that, you know, we felt that the Lord was asking us to step out, you know, for another adoption. Uh, this time it was actually my husband who came to me and said, really? I think that there's another child for our family. <sighs> I like, I think that we need to, you know, that we need to entertain this again. Um, and that was in all, you know, all seven of the children that we had, it was always me coming to him saying, you know, I think, and, and we would, you know, come to a place where we both agreed, but this was the first time that he had been the one to initiate the idea of having uh, another child or adopting another child. So I felt like, okay, the Lord must really be speaking to him because he has never said, <laughs> uh, said that before. So yeah. Um, 
I talked about it at the end of the book about, you know, feeling like God was asking us to step out and do this again. And I didn't know if it was going to be another failed adoption or what was going to happen, but we were just kind of going um, full throttle. And pretty much what I said in the book is exactly what ended up happening. Uh, you know, we walked through another failed adoption and then um, had a, what they call kind of in the adoption world, a stork drop, like a, a very last minute, the baby is born here. Can you, you know, are you interested? And get in your car kind of a thing. Um, so now we have our beautiful baby, Benjamin, and he's seven months old now. Um, and that brought us to to the crazy number eight. And so he's um, he's like just the sweetest baby. And it's, I'm, I'm so like sad that it, it didn't work out, obviously that all that happened in the timing so that he's in the book or all of that. But, um, you know, I don't control the timing of things, obviously, so. Right. Oh, well, I'm glad that, um, I'm glad we could talk about him here and acknowledge him here and just, and all the good, um, that the Lord has done for your family. It's just so, it's such a neat story. I enjoy the book so much. And I just, um, I'm so glad that you could be here today on Mother's Day. I just couldn't think of anything more perfect to, to celebrate, um, on this podcast. But before you go, I have to ask you my two questions. I always ask all my guests. Yeah. I call them my anchor questions because, you know, we talk about food a lot in here and <laughs> instead of what we eat. And, um, I always encourage my, everyone to have their kind of anchor meals that they go to, you know, yeah. healthy anchor meals. So it's just kind of a no brainer. And so, um, I mean, just at any level, I, I know everyone is wondering how you keep up, you know, how you keep all these kids fed. So what are some of your y'all's go-to meals that you have? Yeah. You know, my husband's actually a fantastic cook and he loves to cook. So he does a lot of the cooking around here. Um, but he, if the seasons allow, he's always out on his Blackstone grill. That's like sort of a flat top, almost like a hibachi grill. And he covers that thing with just like, we do like honey mustard chicken and broccoli yeah. and potatoes. And we just love like fresh grilled food like that. Um, but I'm with so many kids, I'm really a big fan of like one pot meals and stuff. We make like a one pot meatball spaghetti kind of thing or a taco bake. Um, sometimes, you know, we try to bust out the crock pot and do like taco soup and things, but really we just found that like a good protein, some veggies and, you know, maybe like some potatoes or, uh, you know, some kind of starchy, something on the side or a salad is always like a go-to, go-to thing. You know, we don't that's overthink perfect. it. We're not doing fancy around here. Let me just say that nothing's too fancy. I think that's really, that sounds impressive to me too. I mean, that's, that's not like really good, solid, you know, healthful meals and, um, that, you know, see everybody, you can do it. <laughs> she can do it with yeah. her, all of her kids. And, um, <clears throat> we do the same thing. We'll throw, a ton of meat on the grill and um it'll last us a couple of days probably doesn't last your family as long as it would last ours but we just <laughs> we just do that you know as much as we can fit and then eat on it for several days and um i find yeah. that that's a really good way to do it yeah um, definitely okay and then the um the other anchor question is your anchor verse i'm sure it's just the scripture verse that really is anchoring you at this time in your life. And, you know, we all have our favorite scriptures, but what, what speaks to you right now? Yeah. I th with everything going on in the world with the pandemic and, you know, uh, the timing of releasing a book during this time and trying to navigate all of that and home and just all of the struggles. Uh, James is already my favorite book of the Bible, but uh, one of the verses that I just keep going back to is uh, James 1, chapter one, verse two, 
uh, consider to share gift friends when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. And I just kind of like ruminate on that sometimes like, okay, this is a gift. These challenges are a gift to us. And it's, um, I mean, obviously very applicable to me in many areas of life, but mm -hmm. viewing my challenges as, as gifts. Yeah. That's a great, yeah, that's a good reminder of a way to look at it. Um, and it builds character and there is usually, there is a gift. There is gifts always come out of a challenge. Um, yeah. You know, typically, well, I think, yeah, if they're received in the right way, but that's a great reminder. Um, well, Angela, it's been so fun and wonderful to get to speak to you in person. And I would love if you would tell everybody how they can connect with you um, and find you and get the book and all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, the book is available pretty much everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, um, all of those places uh, online right now, obviously. And they can find me, I'm This Gathered Nest on YouTube and Instagram, um, and that's pretty much the easiest way to find me. So I really, really appreciate you having me. This was such a fun and wonderful conversation for me. I truly, truly enjoyed it. Well, I did too. Thank you so much. So the book is called, it's named Love Without Borders, How Bold Faith Opens the Door to Embracing the Unexpected. And I, I encourage you all to read it and just, um, it's a, it's a, like I said, it, I love books that give me something to chew on. And, um, it made me think a lot and think about, you know, how we, um, you know, what is our checklist and, what is God's list or what is, you know, what does yeah. God have for us that might be unexpected, but holds such amazing, wonderful gifts in our life. So um, thanks again for being here and thank you everyone for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.